Good evening and welcome, fellow seekers of ghosts, goblins, and other ghastly things that go bump in the night to the Monster Menagerie, a podcast where we explore the mythos behind the monsters. I'm Katie. And I'm Hoshi. And today, we're going to dive into our very first monster. We'll be talking about the Hippogriff. So, when I ask you about the Hippogriff, what's the first thing your mind leads you to? Uh, sort of like, uh, like without looking at anything, without Googling anything, my, my personal first thought is, like, lesser griffin, almost. But, like, where did you hear about the hippogriff, hippogriff first? I feel like the first place, at least I can think of, would be, like, Harry Potter or something. Boom. There it is. Um... That's everyone's first impression. And in fact, it's very hard to find information on the hippogriff if you just Google hippogriff. Almost every site that pops up is Harry Potter related in some way, most notably being the Wiki or the Pottermore fan website. Almost like Harry Potter's popular or something. Exactly. But it also is a misconception behind a lot of people, uh, or for a lot of people, that the Hippogriff was actually created for Harry Potter. Wait, what? Really? My roommates included. Yes, there are people who think that uh, the Hippogriff is or was made. They think that was... They think, wow. Yes, people nowadays really do think that the first appearance of the Hippogriff is Harry Potter. And that's a giant misconception. And that's the first reason I wanted to talk about the Hippogriff. The Hippogriff actually first appears in 16th century Italy. It came from the poem Orlando Furioso, written by Ludovico Ariosto. Um, And he was kind of like, it was like a hyperbole to when pigs fly, but rather when a griffin mates a mare. Oh, so it's like a combo between a griffin and a horse? Yes, exactly. Also, can I just say, 16th century, way earlier than I thought you were going to say. I know! Isn't that surprising? Like, it definitely feels like it's a lot, like it came around way earlier than Harry Potter, obviously. That's still insane to me. But even more insane is that it wasn't developed, like, in BC times. No, um, it was, it's still relatively, um, young in in uh, its creation compared to all the other mythical beasts. You know, when we look at things like the Goliath or the Cyclops from Greek mythology, those creatures are ancient, ancient. But this guy, the Hippogriff, is only as um, old as the Renaissance. That's so Um, weird because I could see those creatures, like, coexisting in mythology, too. Can't you? Uh, as I was I'm curious doing... if your uh, research came up with this. Uh, do you know when the griffin first, like, became a concept? Or was that not something that you found in your hippogriff research? It wasn't something that I uh, noted in the um, research for the hippogriff. But that is something that I'm curious about and something that we'll dive deeper into if we do the griffin in the future. <laughs> when we do the griffin? When we do the griffin, exactly. Um, I will say that the main difference between the two is exactly as you stated. It's a griffin and a horse is what a hippogriff is. Hippogriff 
is the combination of the word um of the of the Greek word hippo, which is horse, and griffo, which is griffin. Um it is exactly that when a griffin mates with a horse and produces the hippogriff. This is seen as impossible, uh, especially because uh, according to... Because griffins don't exist. Well, yes. Um, but in uh, in the lore behind... I'm going to say lore rather than mythology on this one. In the lore of the griffin, according to uh, Caitlin Matthews, who wrote the Element Encyclopedia of Magical Creatures, the griffin's favorite sort of meat was horse. Oh. Yep. So so the saying could also be like if a dog mates with a delicious T-bone steak. Or more closely to if a lion were to fall in love with a mouse. That that opening in Lion King would have been very different. It absolutely would have been. The griffin is as you know, eagle lion. Mm-hmm. rather than eagle horse. And there's your main difference between the two. Other than the fact that the griffin sired the hip- hippogriff. Okay, so it just replaces the lion half with a horse half, basically. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Uh, the fact that this creature is only as ancient as the Renaissance. So one of the things that I do find interesting about how early I... Uh, in its history, the hippogriff is, is I'm going back to how difficult it was to find information on the hippogriff not relating to Harry Potter. And so I'm going to take a step back there and sort of uh, introduce the hippogriff through the eyes of a Potter fan. J.K. Rowling. Well, there's our one. (laughs) There's our one. I had to do it, folks. Love the Potter. Not the writer of him, though. I was honestly trying to remember what her name was, and the entire time in my mind, I kept thinking Stephanie Meyer, but I knew that was wrong because she's the oh one my who God. wrote the, she's my- the, one who wrote the <laughs> bad books. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes. No, it's uh, J.K. Rowling or Joanne. Right, 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 right. I don't know what her middle name is, though. I never really cared enough to... Yeah, pro- yeah, but doesn't start with a K, but... S- Co-problematic. Co-problematic. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, what I wanted to get at was that all throughout its lore through the poem in which it comes from and in Harry Potter, this creature is really loyal. They're really cool creatures. I mean, the first hippogriff that we meet in the Harry Potter universe is Buckbeak, a sort of... In, in this universe, they're very proud, very upstanding creatures. But if you insult them, they're going to destroy you. And honestly, I wish I had the same self-confidence. But we saw that Buckbeak formed a inseparable bond with Harry just because of the respect that Harry showed him. And then when Draco was being a F-boy um, was being Draco. Was being Draco. Then the hippogriff reared back and struck him because screw that kid anyway. That actually follows Buckbeak and Harry's relationship throughout the books. 
in the movies, we really just don't see Buckbeak again. In the books, though, we see him in both of the wizarding wars fighting side by side with Harry in order to help him survive and defeat Voldemort. That behavior, I think, is a trait that I'm sure followed through from the original poem that he comes from. Do you, I, I probably should have asked this a lot earlier, do you have that poem, like, on your person? So, it's written in Italian. Um, they have it translated, but it's kind of like reading those poems. It doesn't work the same way outside of Italian. Yeah. Okay, Basically, okay. what I can tell you is that the uh, poem is called Orlando um, Furioso, or the... I think it's the, like, frustration of Orlando. The main character, Orlando, falls in love with a princess, and the princess then falls in love with another man and runs off with him. Orlando becomes maddened by this, and he uh, basically goes crazy, then a English knight and wizard takes off on the back of a hippogriff, his companion, and the two rush to find the cure. They they rush to go to the moon to find a cure. Yes, it's it's Whoa, a wait, very wait what? Yes, yep. Okay, <laughs> that took so, a turn. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this whole poem is really great. You guys really have to look this up, even if you just go in, you know, like read it on. Wikipedia. Really, I'm not gonna lie, like, sorry to my English teacher in AP Lit, but, um, Wikipedia. Wikipedia is a fine resource for- It's a fine resource. We're not saying do this for your college thesis, we're saying do this for fun, it's fine. Exactly. So the, uh, the knight and the hippogriff, you know, go to the moon- because everything lost on Earth, they thought, went to the moon. And uh, in the poem, they're able to find a potion and take it back and um, wake Orlando from his madness. And in fact, he actually falls out in love with the princess because the love that he felt for her was a type of insanity. That can only be cured by moon juice. That can only be cured by moon juice. But the hippogriff in the story is a stubborn, is considered a stubborn and uncontrollable beast, but one that is loyal to no end and uh, rode with unbelievable speed to their destination, which, you know, it, it carries over. That's it sounds a lot like Buckbeak to me. Honestly, it also, to me, kind of, at least from... My personal experiences, because as you know, and as you, the audience, are about to know, uh, my wife works with horses a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, like, everything you've been describing that makes the hippogriff unique, you know, like, it's stubbornness until it, like, has someone that's bonded to, then it is extremely loyal, and you have to know how to work with it. That sounds a lot like what my wife goes through when, you know, working with horses. Like, she can control these giant animals that lord knows i wouldn't have the first clue what to do with and would likely get myself hurt with 
But she knows how to work with him just fine. And I think it's interesting that that seems to be a uniquely hippogriff thing since mm-hmm. the whole thing is it's a griffin combined with a horse and the horse takes over the lion bit. And I don't imagine lions being super loyal necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, lions are, you know, for example, uh, owls are seen with wisdom, like are, are, yeah. are seen as the wise animal and lions are seen as the brave animal. But because of their... Being cats. Because of their pride mentality, like their their need to to be in a in a family group, like a colony. That's where the loyalty comes from. Because you 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 mess with the the lion's family, and and he's gonna eat you. And that's what the hippogriff is like. Like if, if you're just some random person on the street getting beat up by an ogre, the hippogriff isn't gonna stop and 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 give two craps about what's going on with you like he doesn't know you he doesn't have your respect i just imagined the weirdest version of zootopia as you were describing that oh my god i'd be here for it fantastical uh zootopia i suppose that's just onward now that i think about it but fair enough that is such a cute movie i still haven't seen that and i i need to but i you have too it is so cute no my wife said she that i would love it because of how like you know deeply into like D I am so she said i would like it for that i i know it makes some references to it but i'm not i'll, I'll watch it eventually i don't know maybe tonight yes if if that is a thing then tonight for sure so we've spoken about where the griffin comes from the hippogriff <sighs> i keep doing that keep doing that i'm sorry you always try and get away, but the griffin always comes back like that one needy ex you just can't get away from. I just can't get away from them. You keep trying to, but then th- then they keep calling you at late at nine. They're like, come on, don't, Hippogriff is such a nerd. Come back to yep. me, baby. You know, I, you know I treat you right? So, the Hippogriff, <laughs> being as awesome as they are, we've spoken about them being on screen being in the Harry Potter universe, being only as early as the Renaissance era. But what we don't, what we haven't had the chance to speak about yet is the fact that we have the chance to actually play with them as a companion in some way, shape, or form. And yes, I am talking about tabletop. I was so confused where you were going with that for a second. I'm like, have they been working on making real-life hypocrites? Because that feels like it's illegal, unethical, but very awesome, and I was here for it. Um, What's that quote from um, Jurassic Park? Your scientists were so busy too thinking- too much about think- if they could, they didn't bother to consider if they should. Exactly. No, please don't bioengineer a hippogriff. I'm I'm literally talking about fantasy roleplay. So the hippogriff was actually first seen in one of the earliest editions of the game in 1974. So it has been with D&D since it was first conceived and has continued to be in use by, you know, loyal players, generations of players since then, even now in modern day. Me, for example, I haven't had the chance to use her yet, but I'm, you know, y- you and me, we have a, a 5e real play D&D game. 
Yep. That is ongoing. And my character, Saith, has a raven hippogriff that she calls Spectre. Oh, you've named it. I have named it, yes. She is uh, pitch black and absolutely stunning, but she does have little gray freckles on her hind area. Aw, she got a speckle butt. She got a little speckle butt. That show is called Agents of Damned, by the way. Check it out. We're very funny. We are pretty hilarious, and I don't fumble with my words quite so much. Um. But these creatures in D&D have a very decent armor class, speed, and come with keen sight, even taking advantage on wisdom rolls, and they get a plus five to perception. Hey, can I ask you real quick, just just sidebar, what do you think a decent AC is? Because I have their stats pulled up in front of me, and no, they don't. <laughs> their AC is 11. It's above the minimum. It's so, it's not great. Okay. All right. Fine. Uh, switch that with, though their AC is not impressive. <laughs> no, I'm leaving this in. You have to live with this. Oh, you They are surprisingly fast, though. Like, their their speed is nothing to mess with. I mean, like, yeah, their movement speed on the ground is uh, 40 feet, and their fly speed is 60. Yeah, their, their walking speed is faster than most players, and they're, like, double as fast in the air, which is insane. And they automatically come with multi-attack. So they, on each attack, can beak and claw you at the same time. And those aren't anything to scoff at either. The beak attack is 1d10, and the claw attack is 2d6. So you can still deal a considerable amount of damage. For those who don't play D&D, that's a good amount of damage. Mm Mm-hmm. So the Hippogriff itself, in-game, and in... Each of the worlds that we talk about, it has the same sort of personality that follows it. It's loyal to no end to the person that tames it. However, they're still difficult to live with, still difficult to own, tame, and to deal with. As they are massive beasts that can weigh upwards of 2,000 pounds. I have also noticed something, and I think this is pretty interesting towards it. Every iteration of where these things have shown up in, like, history, well, you know, and in fantasy settings, they're always viewed as, like, a mount in some way. Like, in the original poem you mentioned, they were the Mm -hmm. mount that got them up to the magic moon juice. Uh, And Harry Potter... Uh, Buckbeak was Harry's mount. Mm-hmm. And then even in D&D, when it doesn't show up as just an enemy you have to fight, the second most common way it shows up as when a paladin or a non-paladin player with a very benevolent DM <laughs> gets access to the Find Greater Steed spell, which lets them summon a hippogriff. So more often than not, when they show up, I, I think it's pretty interesting that with that loyalty and difficultness to work with, that they still show up so frequently as mounts. It's, it, it, I think, plays very nicely into, like, the idea behind the hippogriff. Well, so people very often have two main ways of travel when it comes to companions, and that is either, you know, something of flight, like a giant eagle, a giant humanoid eagle with a giant six pack <laughs> that always wins that always wins sorry that's another reference to another sorry. podcast P- please um, listen to agents of dan we're very funny i swear we need the views but they uh, i'm sorry where was i 
we're talking about mounts. Mounts. But you, you, we go back to looking at their speed. We go back to looking at their strength stats, which are really not that bad, honestly. I mean, a plus three to strength, and a, they're at, you know, 17 already. I mean, they're not very smart animals, but you don't really need them to be. Well, most things that you can teach to ride usually aren't. Like, oh. they're, base, they're baseline intelligent enough to be trained, but not, like conversationally intelligent exactly and i think i was trying to get at the two main ways of of travel by companion and i was saying that the main two are flying and riding so we have things like nightmares or or is that what they're called the the horses nightmares that... with a flaming horse yes that can inexplicably fly in D for some reason <laughs> i don't know if that's a normal thing they can do or not but i found that really weird yeah, they don't, they don't have wings, but they have a flying speed for some reason. Those things are so cool. They are very cool. Look for that in the future, I guess. But overall, you know, you you, you take those two companions and, and you have both in one. So now you can fly or ride. The Hippogriff has always kind of been one of my favorite creatures in, I'm going to say, mythological lore. Because I always thought that they are from Greek mythology. When I was a kid, I actually learned, or I was actually told that it was a steed for Apollo because he admired their personality in the way that they were stubborn and self-serving, but would do anything for their master if asked. And so, like, I always thought that they were Greek mythology, a mount for Apollo. But no, turns out that they're just from a 16th century Italian poem. They, they were actually the trusted mount of uh, Leonardo da Vinci, as it turns out. Who knew? <laughs> uh... He would ride around <laughs> as he set animals free because he was a wild man. <laughs> exactly. Um, but that is How more... many hippogriffs do you think he freed? Oh, God. Gosh, who even knows? Hundreds, thousands. No, there aren't that many. There aren't that, <laughs> there aren't that many in existence. Um, yeah, there's none. <laughs> none. Not even one. That's the true shame about our podcast. We talk about these cool things that don't exist. That sucks. You know, as rare as they are, and they're still, they're, they're rare in most lore as well. I think in Harry Potter they they've been able to breed them, but Yeah, they're still like endangered in that though, right? Like Yeah, doesn't, yeah. Doesn't Hagrid mentioned that? Yes. Like they're still rather rare. Also just toss out going forward for everyone listening, I am not a big Harry Potter fan, so if I get a Harry Potter fact right, that is a miracle in and of itself. Yeah, no, I'm proud of you. I really didn't think that Harry Potter was gonna be your go-to when I asked you what you like There's where not you many thought they would have come that from. Use hippogriffs, that's the thing though. That Which, is to your point. They're they're so unpopular, and that makes me sad. And that is one big reason I wanted to bring light and attention to the hippogriff so that everybody out there would take a moment and appreciate this little eagle half-horse creature who is more or less a Capricorn. Let's just... Because we are stubborn and we are self-serving, but I will do my best to take care of the people that I love most and the people that respect me the most. Like you... Hoshi-poo. 
Aw, thanks. And I hope going forward you remember what our show is rated and the fact that I have to bleep all that out. <laughs> yeah. What are we rated again? PG-13. And you have done at least five episodes worth of F-bombs. I can't help it. I am a sailor in our normal episodes. Like, our normal podcast is, is swear-heavy. Yeah, no, the other one is definitely, like, a hard arm. <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. It's our first episode. We're, we're, we're allowed to ease into things. I'm working on it. It was a lot of fun to talk about. Like, I personally didn't realize how close, like, how closely you held hippogriffs, which the fact that I gave you one in our campaign is kind of wild. That was pure coincidence. But it is still cool to just, you know, know how much that, like to learn about the hippogriffs. It was it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Absolutely. I had a lot of fun as well. Um, researching this and putting the information together. Um, I know that I'm not the best at formulating how to like talk about this in in which like I'm not the best at putting words together. But I try, and I had a lot of fun learning, you know, things that I still didn't know about them. Like, you know, I've stated before I went into researching this, my impression was that they're from Greek mythology, but they're actually from the Italian Renaissance. I mean, I, as I said earlier on, so did I. Like, we, we both had that misconception. They're way older. Way older. But that's the opposite that most other people have. So hopefully we've helped to bring everyone back down to, like, that median area where their actual origins come from. From Mr. Bloom's Bad Day, or whatever that poem was called again. <laughs> Sorry, Orlando, that was in my head the whole time. <laughs> that's adorable. It's called Orlando Furioso, and the author is named Ludovico Ariosto. He is an Italian writer from the 16th century Italian Renaissance. Absolutely check out the poem. It's complicated to, like, read when you're trying to figure out what all of the sentences mean. Because it's like reading in Old English. Uh, like the Canterbury Tales. That's the word I wanted to... Do you remember reading the Canterbury Tales? Nope. Fair enough. Glad I could yes and you. <laughs> uh, English lit. It, it, it was, uh... Oh, boy. Um, old, reading in old English is what it's like. So it, complicated to read, but if you want to just read the synopsis of the poem itself, it's I, it's a, po a poem about like chivalry and knighthood. If you want to read the spark notes for it, yeah, basically, check it out. Check it out. Check it out. Do your own oh, research, okay. and you know. <laughs> <laughs> now that you've listened to our informational podcast, go out and do your own research, you nerds. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, God. I'm Katie. And I'm Hoshi. And you're always welcome back to the Monster Menagerie.